Good evening. I have very strict instructions from Ribal here, and I'm going to follow them. So, uh, my name is Nadim Shahadi. I'm a, my connection here is that I'm a former student of the LSE. I'm now at Chatham House. I'm a repentant economist, and <laughs> so I, 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 but I'm very interested in in. in uh, I still have a, an interest in, 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 the, in the subject. Um, it's a pleasure to welcome Professor Frank Clemon. Uh, he is Don Patinkin Professor of uh, Economics at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, em Emeritus. That's and he was <laughs> he was part of the he participated in the uh, Oslo negotiations, the, Pal the Paris Protocol, which are now the subject of, of today, and which what I remember is that there were demonstrations last year in Ramallah with with the placard saying that the Paris don't, don't Protocol. Don't show. I'm going to show it. Oh, tomorrow. you're going to show it. Okay. <laughs> and it's mother. There was something about the mother of the protocol. Yeah. No, there was nothing about the mother. <laughs> but you remind me, forgive me, for a bit of joke. Yeah. When people ask at the time. Palestinians do he mention Sharon often? Said Sharon not, but his mother quite a lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, and uh, I have to tell you to switch off your phones, your uh, mobile phones. I don't know how it works here, but at Chatham House, the lot we don't know what happened to the person who, whose phone uh, went off during it. We're still looking for him. So. Um, and uh, so Professor Clement will speak for half an hour, 40 minutes? Something like this. And then we'll open it for, right. for questions. Let's see. Draw my attention when I find it through something like 20 minutes, all right? Okay. Right, thank you. I'm going thank to sit there. Today. Thank you very Follow much, Nadine. Thank you. You'll excuse me, but I am moving to the other desk. It's slightly higher, and with me it's a bit of a problem, if you don't mind. And I think I'm going to make myself comfortable and take off my coat, my jacket. Oops, does it work like this? What Nadim didn't mention, that I'm also well, not a graduate of the university, of this uh, school, but rather a, a PhD of this school many years ago. Uh, right, let me go straight to the subject. And Nadim already did part of the job for me, and mentioned the demonstration. Can you see it? Is it all right or should lights be turned off or what? Is it really audible? Can I move it? It's okay. okay? All right. So this is, this is the demonstration <coughs> which the chairman has been talking before, speaking before. <coughs> and uh, I think the English version was mainly to distribute to foreign diplomats and so on, but still it's interesting. And there were, as you can see, people demand to terminate social justice and the termination of the Paris Economic Protocol. Um, and uh, there were, was another page, it comes to two pages, which I won't go very uh, piece by piece, line by line, but they're here, the, the red is mine, just so that you will to jump into your, in your eyes, sort of, you can see it. what were the uh, arguments, what were the things which uh, those who wrote this, uh, organized this demonstration, uh, so the Paris Protocol creates. Uh, I won't worry about it. There are some real grievances here. There are some which are perceived. We might come back to that if time allows. 
at the end, just some of the things will sort themselves out, will explain themselves out <coughs> while I talk. And just for the rest, if I hope there will be time in the questions and answers, it's time to go into that. So, as you can see, there's a lot to claim to accuse the Paris Protocol of. Now, I don't know how uh, people in the audience here today, how, are you, how familiar you are with the Paris Protocol uh, and uh, what it contains. So I'll run quickly, uh, rather superficial, superficially, through the protocol itself, uh, not crossing the T's and not dotting the I's. If there will be questions, ask them at the end of it, and then I'll go and say what can be done, what is it can be expected now. Now, before I do that, just one thing. We've got the questions and answers uh, uh, period at the end, but if there's some term which I use which is unfamiliar, uh, or whether some my mispronunciation of the English language uh, makes you wonder what I said, uh, please raise your hand. And I'm trying to deal with it on the spot and not wait for the questions and answers to them. What's wrong? Um, just if, if, if your microphone would be slightly closer to you, that would be I can't. The microphone. The microphone. Oh, the microphone. I'm frightfully sorry. It's rather difficult. Can you do something about it? I'm sorry. <coughs> I thought I was... I can, talk more, I can talk more loudly, but then I'll probably finish my throat before the, the end of the lecture. So I prefer not to. I prefer not to. So what is the Paris Protocol? If you Google, incidentally, you'll find a, you'll find a trove of Paris Protocols. Apparently it was very... A um, fashionable place to negotiate and, and to write, uh, to come to agreements, and there are Paris protocols about whatever you can imagine uh, signed in, in Paris. Now, this one is the result of the Oslo peace process, and uh, this, uh, Oslo again is not one thing, it was a series of meetings and sign signatures. The first one was the Declaration of Principles adopted in Oslo in uh, August 93, and that's what gives the whole process its name. Uh, then it was signed ceremoniously on the loan of the White House on September 13th of the same year in the presence of um, uh, President Clinton with the blessing of President Clinton. Uh, then came along, but these were generalities. We'll cooperate, we'll be nice to each other and so on. And then came rather lengthy negotiations, mainly carried out in the resort of Taba and in Cairo, uh, negotiating the Gaza-Jericho Interim Agreement signed in Cairo on May the false 1994. <clears throat> now, uh, of this, the Paris Protocol is the economic annex. Then there, were, there was another agreement like this, signed again in Washington a year later, and that really <clears throat> extended the Gaza-Jericho Interim Agreement uh, to uh, the West Bank as well. Uh, so it, it included also the Paris Protocol, covered also the West Bank, and then there were very partial agreements on specific issues which won't, won't be bothered here tonight, but again, which all of them are part of the Oslo, of the Oslo agreements, of the Oslo process. Now, you may notice here that twice there's something about interim agreement. And I have to remind you that the, the Oslo agreement, which I describe here, except for the beginning, for the first declaration of principles, was supposed to apply to an interim period of five years. Interim because during that time negotiations were supposed to take place which would lead at the end of the period to a, uh, a, to a uh, permanent settlement, permanent solution of the problem. In other words, a peace agreement 
which will spell everything, all the difficulties, all the problems, all the disagreements will be solved by that time, which was when? 1994. We are now nearly 20 years later. Anyhow, so that is the, that is the Paris Protocol. Now, what did the, it's called Paris Protocol of Economic Relations. You can read the name of it. And the question is, what did it include? Well, first of all, it included a com common customs envelope which was an euphemism really, for a customs union, except that the term union in the Palestinian public would have been completely accept unacceptable with respect to Israel. So that's why it's called the Common Economic uh, Customs Envelope. Uh, but you think that this sensitivity was only on one side, I can tell you that the Israeli side was told not to use the terms exports and imports because exports and imports are only between states and not between something not exactly well-defined, like a Palestinian authority. So this was the first thing. The other thing was, there was the free movement of goods between, between the two parties, which means that goods would, could move from the Palestinian territories to Israel and the other way around without having to pay any taxes, any duties, anything. That's the meaning of a customs union, basically. Then... Uh, was the question of remittance of indirect taxes on Palestinian purchases. And I'll explain later more. What happened was that the Palestinian territories had no harbor or airport of its own. There was some talk of building an airport, uh, harbor in Gaza, a seaport in Gaza, but <coughs> until then, all goods had to pass practically through Israel. They could come through Jordan via the Ellen Bridge, but may mainly they had to, to pass through Israel. And then Israel collected the various imposts on these imports, whether it was tariffs or related tax, uh, on the spot, and until the, Paris, the uh, Oslo process, the Oslo Accord, this money used to go by default uh, to the uh, Israeli exchequer. So that here now a system was built through which this, this money will be remitted to the Palestinian Authority because these are taxes paid by Palestinians on their imports or their um, purchases from Israel in the case of elevated tax. So this was uh, uh, one important part of, the, uh, of this agreement. Uh, fourthly, there's a problem because if you've got a customs union but each partner has got a different system of indirect taxation, then goods will move through that partner which has got lower taxes. And that means that the whole fiscal system of the other partner will be circumvented. So the, the agreement accepted that there could be some, some difference, but a very small one, between the value-added tax rates on both sides <coughs> and the central about other indirect tax rates. And it was an attempt to maintain the normalcy of labor movements. I put it into uh, inverted commas because it sounds rather curious and has got a certain meaning to which I'll come later. And then the Palestinians were also sure that they will have an export surpluses with Israel all those years. And they were afraid they would be stuck with too much Israeli currency, and they, which at that time was non-convertible. So there was also some arrangement about that. And something which will tell you how far the negotiations at that time realized where things were going was the compulsory motor car insurance. Uh, some of you may know that in Europe once, when one traveled from one country to another, one, with the car one had to something which was called a triptych, a lengthy document, costly and and problematic and had to be stamped and inspected at the borders. So here, in order to avoid such a situation, because at that time vehicles used to move freely, there was a special uh, 
mechanism or build up of constructed for compulsory motor car insurance. And finally, the protocol also suggested envisage the establishment of a joint economic committee which will solve, which will deal with any problems which might appear on the way. So this was this was the basic, the basic important things of this protocol. However, the Palestinians were not allowed to issue their own currency. The reason being political, because currency is a sign of, uh, is a symbol of uh, <coughs> sovereignty. Uh, though they were allowed to, to issue stamps, curiously enough, uh, they had, had no right to independently conclude any economic agreements with other three, third parties, because that would affect as a being in a customs union with Israel, that would affect also Israel indirectly. Uh, also, they had to accept Israeli industrial standards, which are sometimes used as a non-tariff barriers on imports. Uh, and the, the, the Paris Agreement did not promise a free movement of labor. It maintained the normalcy of labor movement, something rather vague, and the reason was that already at that time two problems raised uh, the reason. One was there were already some terrorist attacks, mainly knifings, by guys coming from Gaza. And Israel at that time could envisage a situation where it would like to restrict for security reasons the number of Palestinians entered. And uh, also there also was the possibility of uh, unemployment. If there will be unemployment in Israel, uh, Israel would be less ready to accept workers coming from, from outside. So that's why this vague rather term, the normalcy, whatever it may mean. Uh, fourthly, the Paris Protocol does not cover the use of land and water resources, airspace, or electronic wavelengths. These are parameters which are, can be quite important in, 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 economic, in economic development but they were not part of the economic uh, agreement. They were part of the political and uh, uh, security provisions and uh, the whole, the whole uh, being an annex to the, uh, to the uh, agreement on the establishment of the Palestinian Authority, they were subservient to all the political and, the, and security clauses of that agreement. So, uh, now, what was the background to that? The background was, first of all, that in the wake of the 1967 war, Israel imposed practically an economic union, unilaterally. The Palestinians were not asked about it. And um, <clears throat> that union was fairly... There were some problems with it because there were some exceptions there which served the interests of some Israeli pressure groups or vested interests. Uh, second, but it was basically there was an economic union. Uh, secondly, there were practically was completely free movement of people, uh, of vehicles, and uh, it says goods, but really most goods, some agricultural goods were, were accepted from that. But otherwise, it's today difficult to imagine that cars from Gaza or from, from Ramallah used to travel freely, people used to travel freely, there were no restrictions, no checks, there was no border. Uh, the border itself was a border on the map but there was no, no, no physical obstacle whatsoever to prevent things moving from one side to the other. Uh, also, Israel was reluctant to establish an economic border as that would be interpreted to say, oh, these, are the, these are the limits of what we hope to keep of the, of the, uh, of the land. And that was true also of the Palestinians. They also were not very happy 
to accept a line which later may be interpreted as saying that that's what, what's outside that the Palestinians are ready to see to Israel. There was also the Palestinians wish to continue having access to the Israeli markets, which by their, by their standards were huge ones. Israel is very tiny and was even tinier then, if you don't judge by headlines in the newspapers. But um, <coughs> compared relatively to the Palestinian communities, originally in 67, after the 67 war, it was one thirtieth. Palestinian economy is one-thirtieth of the Israeli one. So, uh, and uh, I'll say something about that in a moment. And it provided markets which were huge by Palestinian standards uh, to the Palestinians. Uh, without a border, the custom union was the only possible solution. Because if you don't have a border, in each side has its own tariffs, its own customs, then obviously goods will come through through that jurisdiction which has got the lower customs. So it will void any custom legislation, any indirect tax legislation, which uh, one of the partners <coughs> or the other partner, or to some extent both partners, uh, have, uh, have established for themselves. Uh, that also required the near equalization of, uh, of indirect taxes for the same reason. If you have got different rates of taxation, the, same, the goods will come through the lower taxation and jurisdiction. Uh, now, what also happened was not part of Oslo, was not part of Oslo, but happened ipso facto out of the, uh, uh, of the, uh, of the transfer of uh, authority to the civil authorities, the Palestinian authority. Israel used to some extent uh, sometimes uh, by design, sometimes by default. Quite often, the Israeli military administration used to uh, prevent by bureaucracy the setting up of Palestinian industrial plants which would compete with some Israeli plant. This was never officially announced, this was never an official policy, but it used to happen. Now, the moment the, uh, the civil authorities or the civil jurisdiction is handed over to the Palestinians, this automatically does, does not exist any longer. It was not part of Oslo, but it came together with Oslo. I want you to read these two things because the one is from the Royal Palestine, Palestine Royal Commission Report of 1937, commonly known as the Peel Report, because there was a Lord Peel who, uh, who chaired this committee. And if I may recommend it to anybody interested in Israel in the Jewish I'm saying Jewish Arab problem in Palestine, I would suggest that it's still one of the best, if not the best documents to read. Outdated, but still perhaps the best document to read. Um, and it says quite that the both states should uh, impose identical custom duties, here's a possible exchange. And then the same thing came out of UNSCOP, the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine from 1947, the one that, the one that uh, um, uh, recommended but, uh, the partition of the country into two states. So it's not, all this is not a new idea. Uh, Oslo created great hopes and, great, and also great frustration. First of all, people expected a peace dividend. Uh, here, the talk of the Israeli foreign minister, Mr. Peres, uh, created expectations of a shower of gold which will come up and down on the Middle East uh, following these things, and uh, expectations which are not, don't, are not fulfilled are a dangerous thing politically. Uh, what also happened, there was a deterioration of the security situation. As I mentioned before, there's already stabbings, knifings of people coming from, 
from Gaza, so much so that Israel encircled Gaza with a fence already before the beginning of the Oslo process. Uh, later, you had contribution of a, of a Israeli Jewish settler, a medical man, Dr. Goldstein, who took his gun, walked into the mosque in the cave of the patriarchs and started shooting around. And you had the reaction to that of the, of the Hamas with the suicide uh, attacks on uh, uh, on public transportation in Israel, which incidentally, in a way, that's a sign aside, uh, led to the assassination of uh, Prime Minister Rabin. <clears throat> now, this resulted uh, in increasingly stricter restrictions on entry of Palestinians, Palestinian vehicles. As you can imagine, uh, things like designated crossing points, which did not exist beforehand, where goods could be, could be, could be tested. There still was no border, no physical border, but a vehicle coming in any other way would be in trouble. So that was one way. So you, it made it more expensive for Palestinians to export because they had to import, because they had to go to uh, these designated crossings. There were roadblocks uh, and checkposts within the uh, Palestinian uh, territories uh, to prevent uh, the organization the successful operation of terrorist cells. And there was back-to-back -back, uh, unloading and loading of goods. If goods had to pass from, at that time, from the West Bank to Israel, they had to be, first of all, reloaded on Israeli vehicles because Palestinian vehicles were no longer, no longer allowed. And there were also checks on the goods themselves. All these things were equivalent to customs. They were really non-tariff barriers. They make exporting the hustle much greater, and you can work out, if you want, equivalent to what level of custom duties there are. So with the custom union, but there were some other uh, obstacles which were quite serious. Goods were could pass free of taxes. That was the meaning of, of the customs union. But the question is, can they pass? And that was really the difficulty. And that, all that resulted in worsening very much the economic condition in, in Palestine. Now, this led to criticism of the, Paris, of the Paris Protocol. And first of all, there was a popular reaction in the um, uh, West Bank and Gaza. And this is, you know, people, mostly, most of us, tend to think consecutively. If uh, A preceded B, then B is the result of A. Or if some of you may remember the term, which is an economist I learned many years ago, the Latin term, ergo, uh, sorry, hic, post-hic ergo propter hic. After something, therefore because of something. And that's, that was the reaction. Following Paris Protocol, our situation became worse. That was mean that it's Paris Protocol which did it. There was a diaspora, Palestinian diaspora reaction. That's Israeli colonialism. The economy is not independent. Whatever independent economy means, which is not very clear. Uh, uh, the truth is that the poor in the, in the diaspora what they wanted from any agreement was the right of return to their old houses, which don't exist any longer in most cases, but that's beside the point. Uh, while the well-off, uh, some of them wanted their property back, and most of them wanted a political sovereignty, a very formal one and so on, and this agreement did not give it to them. Not, not the Paris Protocol, the whole agreement didn't. So there was a, a, a negative reaction to the whole, to the whole thing. Um, some Israeli academic sympathizers wanted the Palestinians to have a border. Uh, now, which is perfectly legitimate, but they tried to dress it or to claim it in terms of economics. 
So they were in favor of free trade area agreement. As I explained to you later, a free trade area agreement is impossible without a physical border. Um, and they also used the term that this was an incomplete, the Paris Protocol was an incomplete contract. Why incomplete? It did not take into consideration what to do if things would deteriorate the way they did. And my private comment on that is that if that is the case, then most contracts are incomplete because otherwise the courts would have nothing to do the civil courts, at least. You cannot always think of everything that might happen. I can tell you only one thing, that uh, the terms of reference we got from the then Prime Minister, Mr. Rabin, for the negotiations, and for Mr. Shahat, who was the finance minister, uh, included, uh, really we drafted them, but they, <laughs> they signed them, was to consider any possible suggestion in the, the worst possible scenario. And it turned out that our imagination wasn't bad enough. We didn't imagine all this would happen. The World Bank, incidentally, and that's interesting, the World Bank, there were some people there who, out of sympathy to the Palestinians, which I can perfectly understand, the Palestinians over time became the underdogs in a very clear way, got to the stage where more trying to more than help the Palestinians they were trying to crucify Israel. And they worked out to, hard to prove that the common customs and rules is very detrimental to Palestinian welfare. And one of them, I won't mention the name, this is in a very, using very sophisticated economic modeling, but the problem was the, mod the modeling was perfect, but the data were the wrong data. So <coughs> these were part of the problems. And I'm sorry to say, the LSC, there was a group at the LSC called, the, I think, the policy, what were they called? I'm trying to think for a moment. They were policy, something policy. Um, excuse me for a second. The policy, policy planning program, uh, which uh, had some very, very serious um, professional economists in it. I won't, I, I won't, I won't mention the names. Uh, and they um, argued at that time that an overall zero tariff will be preferable for the free trade area, not to mention customs unions, to the Palestinians. Now, this is rather interesting because uh, zero tariff also means hardly any government revenue. Countries like Palestine, at a relatively level low of development, uh, have got a problem of collecting enough of tax revenues. And one of the ways of doing that is having mainly indirect taxes. They are much easier collected than direct taxes like income tax or something else. And they were trying, I mean, displaying complete ignorance of the situation uh, in the Middle East, uh, to argue that uh, the, uh, <coughs> the Palestinian Authority could, with, with, with a very small effort, build up a um, mechanism of, uh, of uh, direct income taxes, of income tax, basically, which would make uh, customs and indirect taxes uh, unnecessary, which I think was rather close, giving the fact that it's sort of very, very, very serious names. But part of the work they took from the World Bank work and again, they, they had a certain a priori attitude, unfortunately. unfortunately. Uh, the other criticism, which is, oh, sorry, which made more sense, uh, is was the, there were leakages in the tax remittances. And the argument was simple. These were monies which were collected in Israeli harbors and airports on goods coming in from abroad. Now, if the, these goods came and, on, and it said, this consignment is from Mr. So-and-so Ramallah, there was no problem. All the taxes were automatically going to the Palestinian Authority. 
But if an Israeli importer brought a container and decided to sell one quarter of it to the Palestinians, he didn't bother to declare it. He wasn't quite sure, he didn't bother, he couldn't care. And therefore that money wouldn't go to the Palestinians. So there was some real tax leakage. How large is the question of debate? There was also a misunderstanding. Uh, as you probably, some of you might know, the United States doesn't have a value-added tax. They've got sales taxes. So they were sure that if goods are entering the harbor, Israeli harbor, and value-added tax is paid, and it's not remitted to the Palestinian Authority immediately because it's not knowing where these raw materials will go, then that is lost without realizing that the nature of the value-added tax is such that the tax which is not collected at one stage is automatically collected at the other because the next stage cannot deduct previous taxes from what it owes to the government. Usually, the usual thing is that they collect the tax imposed on some good, I mean the value-added tax, from the buyer, but they, but they pass to the government only the difference between what they collected and what they paid to their supplier. And therefore, value-added tax, there couldn't be any leakages, leakages there. But there is this argument, and there are some leakages, how large they are is a good question, which one can debate. <coughs> uh, one can also claim that the best is the enemy of the good, but there was, there was some substance in that, in that, uh, in that um, complaint. I can tell you only one thing. This was the, I would say, the most criticized, I think, paragraph of the whole, of the whole uh, Paris Protocol. And it's the only one which works perfectly until today. And surprise. 70% uh, of the revenue of the Palestinian Authority comes from the remittances of taxes collected by Israel for them. It's created a political problem in Israel because from time to time you hear the extreme right criticizing the government, you're subsidizing uh, our enemy, you're sending money to the Palestinians and so on and so forth. And there was another thing which I mentioned uh, perhaps later. Now, the question is, the situation now is different. And what happened is that what makes possible now, what, what the separation wall or barrier, fence, whatever you want to call it, makes possible is to have separate economies. Separate not in the sense that they don't trade with each other, but in the sense that there is no fear of goods, of, uh, goods taxed at a different rate and one of them passing over to the, to the other one. I mean, there's always some smuggling, but under present circumstances it's rather problematical. So that makes possible a free trade area, and I'll explain later what the free trade area agreement means. So it makes possible a free trade area agreement uh, with Israel. It makes possible free trade area agreements with other neighboring countries. And you see, the thing is that a free trade area, a customs union is basically, basically a, a monogamous marriage. You cannot have a customs union with two countries which don't have a customs union between themselves. But um, NFTA and free trade are agreement you can. It's a polygamous uh, marriage, so to say. <clears throat> uh, there are also some possibilities. One is a non-discriminatory tariff program. In other words, a uniform tariff, uniform custom of goods wherever they come from, wherever they come from. And finally, universal free trade, zero tariff, what the LSE group recommended at the time. Now, all four of them, are less conducive to exports <coughs> than customs union. <coughs> For a simple reason, that the customs union, does not, as I'll show you later, does not prevent participating in free trade agreements, which Israel has got with countries like the EU and the US. 
and that's exactly what the Palestinian economy has. Um, and also because the Israeli market is so large and so close. Just to give you an example, an important uh, item in the exports of the Palestinian Authority to Israel was building stone. Now, building stone usually doesn't travel well, not because it perishes on the way, but because it's heavy, it's costly to, to transport, and there are cheaper alternatives usually somewhere in the neighborhood. So there was some ruler in one of the Gulf principalities who wanted his palace to be built of uh, Jerusalem stone from the holy city. But on the whole, and I must say there is also an entrepreneur from Chochul near Hebron who managed to discover that he could cut Jerusalem stone very thinly, so polish it, and market it abroad as Jerusalem marble with great success. Among other things, he, was, um, um, he got the order for the uh, repavement of the church of St. Francis of Assisi, which had to be rebuilt after the earthquake there, but also in other places. So the entrepreneurs always find a niche, but altogether stone is not something. Now that's something which used to go in huge quantities into Israel. Uh, fresh vegetables, despite certain restrictions. So there are a lot of things which can be exported cheaply to enable, even with the, with the security arrangements and so on, which, may, which uh, are equivalent to some non-tariff barriers. So, and once you have got a free trade area, there's a problem. And the problems are for a number of reasons, which I'll explain later. So all these alternatives are less conducive to exports than a custom unions, but they are not less vulnerable to Israeli security restrictions. Uh, there were some arguments regarding the police protocol, the customs union. Ah, yes, but now we have got all these security restrictions which uh, uh, empty the custom union from some of its advantages. Let's move to a free trade area agreement. The free trade area agreement will also be affected in the same way because security conditions will apply there as well. So it will be uh, the same loss. Uh, now, there's a question why export didn't grow since Oslo. And I can tell you the following. Exports, exports already long time before Oslo were in the order of magnitude of 500 to uh, 580 uh, million dollars in, 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 current, in, in, uh, in current dollars of, uh, of those years. Last year, Palestinian exports of goods, I'm talking, not services, were 720 million dollars, which means that in real terms, they've decreased. And there are some reasons for that. Part of them have to do with the Israeli restrictions of movement, both within and out of the West Bank and Gaza, certainly of Gaza in the last years. But also there is another effect which Palestinian economists used to complain about, or Palestinian businessmen, but they're not economists. As long as uh, the entry of labor was unrestricted into Israel, the wages of Palestinians working in Israel and the wages of Palestinians working in the West Bank in similar um, industries uh, were more or less equalized. Uh, that meant that the wages there were rather high. And there was a complaint of business entrepreneurs that the wages are too high, it doesn't pay to produce locally. I think that they complained because they didn't want to pay such high wages, but also there, is something, there was something in this argument, uh, and that also uh, militated against exports. Now, sorry. Now, a non-discriminatory tariff, which was the last possibility I want to show, the last possibility mentioned here, universal free, sorry, 
the third one, and the universal free trade, both of them, uh, would mean giving up on free trade agreements with the US and the EU, which are very valuable, because these are the large markets in the world, not the, not the, not the Middle East. Middle East isn't a large market, in And uh, free trade would require giving up completely customs and revenue. The Palestinian Authority would have to think up ways of finding some finance. Even so, it has got great difficulty to, to find enough finance, but that would even kill that. Now, in a free trade area agreement, as I mentioned before, partners have their own custom duties. Uh, each of them can have free trade agreements with other partners as well. Good enter freely from one country to another on the conditions that were produced in the first country, in the partner country. And that raises the question, what does, be, and what does it mean produce there? And there are things which are called rules of origin. Usually a certain proportion of the value added, something like 35 or 40 percent, has to be produced in the country from which the goods come. Now for a small country with a very high import content, it's very difficult to fulfill these rules of origin. Secondly, there is a costly procedure of producing the documentation necessary that this indeed is so. So, um, and it requires uh, checks of the goods to see whether they qualify to enter without, without any, uh, any customs. So they were really produced in the other country. In other words, goods produced in Palestine. Sorry, I've got a problem using this in Palestine. I still got a Palestinian passport. So, <laughs> mandatory one. When I grew up, it was all Palestine. In the Palestinian state, let's call it. Goods produced in the Palestinian states could enter Israel on the prov- tax-free, on the provision that 35 or 40 percent of the value that was produced in the Palestinian state. Otherwise, they would have to pay, uh, to pay duty. And it means that the, 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 the border between Israel and the Palestinian state, there would have to be uh, checks on goods to discover whether they qualify to enter free of, of tax. And in this case, uh, they would have to, as I said, to produce uh, documentation and so on. Uh, on top of that, there is one great difficulty, or other group of difficulties, which I'm not going to try to suggest the solutions here now. That's what do you do with Jerusalem? I mean, not in general. What do you do with Jerusalem for the purpose for the, of an economic agreement? Because both sides don't like the idea, especially as far as the old city is concerned, of having a border in the middle of the town, a physical border. On the other hand, the alternative would be having a border between their own country and their own capital, because both of them want to locate their capital there. So this is a serious problem. It's got also economic implications. I am not going to discuss them, if you forgive me. Now, the customs union. The surprising thing is that the World Bank, which for years was very strongly opposed to, to, the, to the idea of a customs union, as I mentioned before, last year changed completely its views, but completely, from A to Z, and started extolling the virtues of a customs union compared to a free trade area agreement. Uh, they even so, went so far that they included the cost of negotiating a free trade area agreement as part of the, uh, of the uh, drawbacks of a free trade area agreement. Uh, now, there is one problem with the customs union, not one, there is a set of problems. One is there will be, obviously, there could be conflicts between Israel and the Palestinian in setting up the import regime. What, what goods will pay duty? How much? Uh, whether to discriminate between imports from different countries. All these things have to be agreed upon. But uh, it's difficult to envisage a joint decision-making mechanism. 
if you think of it for a moment, the sheer disparity in size between the two economies completely prevent the possibility of having a real, a real joint, joint decision-making mechanism. One can have it in name, but in practice that would mean the Palestinian state might have to accept the Israeli customs dictates. What Israel will decide, they will have to take. Now, this may not always be beneficial to the Palestinian economy, but what worries me more, and should worries probably the Palestinian more, that it will not be always politically unpalatable to the Palestinian community. I'm not worried. Israel hardly has got any, uh, any uh, duties now. The duties it has, uh, many of them are on things which the Palestinians also like to have custom duties. But uh, having a joint, joint decision-making mechanism, I cannot, I cannot imagine working, especially not now, after the great breach of trust, which resulted on both sides, but especially on the Israeli side, which resulted from the Second Intifada. So there is a problem here. And uh, to summarize, uh, I think I'm fine with time on. Yes. Summarize. The Paris Protocol aimed at continuing the relationship which existed before also ever since occupation of the West Bank and Gaza by Israel, while making it more equitable. Uh, I sometimes use the term that the Paris Protocol tried to legalize the shotgun marriage of 1967. And uh, making it more equitable meant a number of things. First of all, removing some of the restrictions on exports to Israel. And they were to be removed gradually over a period of four years until the until the, <coughs> the permanent settlement, which uh, didn't, didn't uh, occur so far. Uh, and also the thing of uh, um, remitting to the Palestinians their customs and VAT and uh, paid. VAT paid, first of all, on imports, which are paid automatically at the harbor, but also on purchases from Israel. Net of what Israel is paid to the to Palestinian, but to the very added tax to the Palestinian Authority. But uh, because of disparity in the size, it's mainly um, the uh, very added tax which um, uh, Israel collects on sales to the Palestinians. And that is, insofar as it's proof of it is being provided by the Palestinians, that is um, uh, remitted to them, to the Palestinian Authority. And they said it's 70% of the revenues of the Palestinian Authority comes from that source. Um, Oh, sorry, the trust thinks too much. Um, now, uh, one has to remember, yeah, so uh, what happened was, of course, that the unexpected worked. I mean, the, the change in political conditions and uh, security conditions avoided much of the, uh, of the potential of the, of the customs union. It does not mean that it made other alternatives uh, more attractive but it made the customs union less attractive than it would have been otherwise. Uh, now, the separation barrier makes other uh, trade agreements possible. Now, I want to emphasize, it does not preclude the customs union. You cannot have a customs union without a fence, without a physical border. But you can have a customs union with a physical border. There's no problem about that. Goods pass through that border and don't pay, don't pay any tax, that's all. Uh, and the free trade area agreement carries an, carries an economic cost. It's less, it's less advantageous, it will be less advantageous to the Palestinian economy uh, than a customs union. On the other hand, the customs union has got a political cost, having to accept Israeli decisions, which will not always be good to the Palestinian economy, 
but much worse will be highly unacceptable to the Palestinian public. So there's a trade-off here between economic efficiency and domestic political expediency. It's a trade-off which the Palestinians will face, and they will have to decide. But uh, that's how it looks like. Now, uh, you know, the Paris Protocol was sometimes referred to as a quasi-customs union. Why quasi? Well, for some people, meant that it did not include free movement of labor, but the movement of labor is never, never, never part of a customs union. Turkey has got a customs union with the EU. There is no free movement of la Turkish labor into, into, the, into the EU. <coughs> but quasi because there were also, if you excuse me, I'll sit down, uh, it's, but also because uh, some of the, sorry, because there were some safety valves, so to say, and that was that some goods could enter uh, in limited quantities, free of any duties, if they came from Jordan or Egypt. And that was partly to save sort of Palestinian pride, if you want. There was also, on face, there was also a, a list, known as list B, of goods where the, Israel will follow the Palestinian decisions. The Palestinians decree to change the, uh, the tariffs there or something, or the industrial uh, standards, Israel will accept that. It was the very large, let's, let's face it, uh, a colleague of mine, when I told him about this, said, oh, come off. I mean, my wife and I discovered it long ago. We always called when we wanted to furnish uh, the, the apartment. So we just we knew that if we will have to agree on it, we will never, never succeed. So we decided to share out the rooms. Part of them I will decide the furnishing, and part of them she will decide the furnishing. So it was something like this here in principle, because the list of goods on which the Palestinian could decide was rather narrow, but still the principle was there. So that's what it was really a quasi, it was a customs union with elements of a free trade area uh, agreement. Now, uh, one could also, it seems that the movement will, might be to a quasi free trade area agreement. In other words, having a free trade area agreement which excludes certain goods from any inspection, goods which it's known that can be produced only by Palestinians in the country, they won't have to prove uh, um, um, the proportion of, um, uh, of value added uh, in the country and so on, they, these goods will move freely. So there will be a quasi-fraternity uh, agreement with some elements of a custom union, a quasi-custom union. Uh, now, ex-Prime Minister Fayyad recently had an exchange of letters with the ex-Israeli finance minister, he's now some minister of something else, Steinitz, and uh, what was... Uh, agreed upon, though I don't think it has been carried out so far, was to have an economic border. In the sense that there will be Palestinian customs stations on, this, on, on the east side of the separation fence, and Fayyad uh, very strongly emphasized that this does not mean that Palestinians are accepting the separation fence as a, as a, as a future border or something of this sort, um, but there will be custom, the custom houses there, bonded warehouses, and goods will be sent there and will be then uh, assessed by Palestinian tax officials. And that, it was said, might decrease the leakage of the tax money. Now, the truth is it won't decrease any leakage. It will have a completely different effect. Because the talk was about things coming in containers, sealed containers, and traveling in sealed containers from the harbors to these bonded warehouses in the Palestinian territories. 
Now anything which comes with a sealed container and says so and so Ramallah, automatically all the taxes collected in the harbor are, uh, are, uh, are credited to personal authority. So there's no tax leakage there. However, it will reduce Israel's power to pressure the Palestinian Authority by withholding remittance of monies, which is due to them. Because uh, on a number of occasions, the Israeli government uh, decided not to pass some of the money, or at least it withheld some of these remittance, some of this tax money collected for the Palestinians, and did not pass them immediately to the Palestinian treasury, uh, for, for some I- initially unannounced period of time. Now, if these containers go straight to, um, to Palestinian territory, te- all the taxes are collected there. That part of Palestinian impulse is, cannot be any longer subject to any Israeli uh, interference, to any Israeli withholding and so on. I think that's what uh, Prime, Prime, ex-Prime Minister Fayyad had in mind, and plus uh, the idea of... Uh, uh, Developing a tax, a tariff, a customs collection group, and uh, you know, personal, and so on. So, what we can accept is that, uh, sorry, that we will have something which will there will be a significant change from the present situation. I have to remind you, there's nothing holy about the Paris Protocol. It was a document. It was written when there was no. A precedent for such a for such a I can tell you one thing. I don't know if you know how two things how how the Benelux came into being. Well, Benelux came into being first of all because Luxembourg used to belong to the German Zollverein, uh, uh, to German Customs Union, and after the First World War, being with the Germans in one boat and to the same currency and so on wasn't look so attractive, they suggested themselves to the French, the French refused, so they went to the Belgians. The Belgians said, all right, and how will we decide? And the Luxembourgians said, you will decide for us, period. So that worked. Then this uh, Belgium-Luxembourg Union decided to come into a customs union during the Second World War. The governments in exile in London did that, and and with the Netherlands. And they worked everything very neatly, and then was the question, what will they do if there is a dispute? How to solve a dispute? They decided they'll need to have an external referee for that. And the external referee has to be somebody who speaks both French and Flemish, and is a, sub, is a subject of, of neither country, and is an expert in the field. Well, the first case they had took them six months to find such a paragon of all virtues. Mm-hmm. The guy took six months to study the subject, and then he did a very unfair thing. He dropped dead. After that, they decided to do it by consensus. So here we have got a problem. I don't know how the consensus will work, but uh, a, some sort of a quasi-fiduciary agreement might be perhaps the, the best, will be perhaps the best solution. Now, this, of course, depends on the Palestinians. Once there is a fence, you see, Israel has got to, is, there are Israeli firms and industries who have got an economic interest in holding the territory, the Palestinian territories, having a captive market there. But for the Israeli economy as a whole, this is nothing. So uh, for what Israel's main, main interest is, and that was to some extent true also during the Paris Protocol uh, negotiations, is to prevent the Palestinian economy of being a conduit for circumventing Israeli, the Israeli tax regime. That is really the main, the main, inter- the main interest. I'm finishing in a few minutes. 
that's really the, 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 main, the main interest. Um, so it is for Palestinians to decide. But I have to warn you, I am not sure Israel will be amenable to a quasi free agreement. There's a growing tendency in Israel to separate from the Palestinians as much as possible. You see, there is in, in Palestinian, not only Palestinian uh, public, what I call the Shylockian view of Israel. If these Jews hold to something, there must be some profit for them there. But that isn't the point. And as I said, Israel's interest is, is not having, making it possible to circumvent its own tax and import regime. Otherwise, it's not their interest. And they are not got, nowadays, once there was this part of the public at least, want, had a hope for a better life for the Palestinians, something which would be also better for Israel. I think that's not true any longer. It's not true any longer. So there might be some difficulties there, but that belongs to another talk in another few years. Thank you very much for your patience. Incidentally, this is the whole document, 37 pages of it, not more. This whole thing, which is demonstrations, it's a document of 37 pages. I'll move next to you so that I can... Yeah. I'm walking with all my belongings, you'll forgive me. <laughs> Almost all my belongings. All right? No separation. Thank you. Thank you very much for... Very interesting, but a bit puzzling because I was expecting uh, uh, a bit more about the need for change, given what's happened in the last 20 years. I mean, you have now uh, Gaza almost as a separate entity. You have the possibility of Rafah being open, uh, I mean, with, with, with Egypt. Um, other than the question of of Jerusalem, you have the well, the, the UN vote for mm. which in principle allows the Palestinian Authority to start thinking of WTO membership. So would that ha- so all, all these issues all how these do they how do they affect no, first of all very simple. Very simple. Because they can they can then you can then use WTO as a reference rather than Let, let's let's start from Gaza. Yeah. Yeah. Gaza has been fenced off already before Oslo. So as I told you, once you've got a fence, once you've got a physical barrier, any possible trade regime apply, can apply. Can be, can be... It's got no... Thank you. So as far, as far as Gaza, the person can choose whatever they want. I didn't want to say what I think the person will choose. It's not for me to say. But I... Um, they can choose any... any, any any regime they want, whether this will, Israel will accept it is another story, but they can choose any regime they want. Secondly, a Palestinian state, WTO, WTO could to some extent become a, a arbiter, arbiter in, in, in disputes between Israel and the Palestinians. But the disputes are usually not strange on, 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 on trade policy, but other things like security arrangements. 
Now, I don't think that WTO will want to put its head into this uh, this bed of deciding whether Israeli checks are really um, unavoidable or really a way of uh, damaging the Palestinian economy and things of this sort. I don't think that would that would be the WTO would like to to deal with that. So all these things which I'm mentioning, they are of great importance politically, but they don't affect the economic problem. Well, the fiscal leakage. Well, let's not make this into a conversation. Right. <laughs> but, but no, no. Well, no. Let's open it to the to the public. But to the uh, but, but uh, I mean, what I hear from Palestinians about the fiscal leakage yeah. is that. Your, the estimates of the Israel versus their estimate is, is, is the difference is huge, and then yeah. it would cover it, it would cover most of their deficit. So, uh, hold hold your horses, or yeah. immediately. Yeah. Once you have got a border, yeah. the goods will come to the Palestinians directly, and they will collect the taxes. Look, all Israel gains from this collecting of taxes, except this, uh, which was unex. Uh, one didn't think of that at that time. This, this power to make trouble for personal authority by not remitting it in time is three and a quarter, I think, or three and a half percent for administering it. And you, Israel, Israel will survive without this three and a half percent of the Palestinian. Yeah. The moment you get it, it's like with the sealed containers I mentioned before. If there's a border and they can arrange for goods to pass through the border either in sealed containers from the harbors or coming from Israel, in which case there will be a... a Customs office at the crossing point, and they'll have to pay the customs to the Palestinian authorities, certainly the value of the things. So, this, this will solve this problem. But the problem exists. I mean, yes, but the question is that you don't know what the size of it is. Yeah. That's, that, that's part of the problem. That's part of the problem. Look, during the negotiations, somebody. The World saw, Bank says it's 200 million, and you're The World Bank says it's 200 million, that's an estimate of the Palestinian authority. That's what they say quite openly. Yeah. It's not their estimate. So that's one thing. That's one thing. Yeah. Uh, secondly, secondly, uh, when the thing was negotiated, Palestinians came and said, "We want an agreement like the South African Customs uh, Agreement of 1901." All right, slightly amended in 1911. Now I think they are changing it. And under that, Lesotho. Lesotho is a country which is completely surrounded by South Africa. So Lesotho was supposed to get its, its custom. Then it was rather easy. All the trade coming from outside, through some harbors, used to go on the same railway line to Lesotho. So you could observe it on the way. And also, the, the, the South Africa paid another 14%. That was a subsidy to the Lesotho. This 14%, look at some publication of mass of the Palestinian, um, you'll find this 14% somehow became part of the, of the idea of how this thing is, should work. Look, tax leakage there is, incidentally, there's very serious leakage, and that's something which Fayyad managed to get partly under control because some Palestinians don't report their purchases. Look, it works the following way. A Palestinian in, uh, wholesaler, buy something from an Israeli producer and pays value added on that. He should bring that certificate of that value to his um, tax office, the percent tax office, be credited with that sum in, his, uh, in the money which he has to pay to the uh, value that money to pay. And then the personal authority can use that to demand from Israel. They don't bring the physical uh, receipts, but they can be, uh, can be demanded to be, to be shown on demand on both sides. 
Now, if somebody does not want how much his uh, government to know how much he earns, and such people occur in many countries, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, especially in the Middle East. No, no, Greece is not Middle East. But still. So uh, such people occur in, any kind, uh, in every country. Uh, and the, uh, I can tell you something about Israel's first years. But anyhow, so uh, there is a serious lack of that. And part of the leakage is there. Part of the leakage is under-reporting of, uh, of uh, value-added tax because they don't want to pay income tax. Let's open it to... Uh, yes, um, thank you, Professor Khan. My name is Alat Bertir. I'm, I'm a researcher at LSE. I'm the program director of Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. But I have two very quick questions. As I understood it, one of your major arguments is that the wall, or separation wall, apartheid wall, whatever we call it, make other trade arrangements possible or feasible. But how such economic arrangement interacts with international law? As we know, the ICJ uh, judged the illegality of that wall, that, that you're basing the argument on it. And is there an issue that we need to think of it beyond, of course, the um, technical economic issues? Like here we talk about the wall that is illegally illegal wall according to international law, and we, bas- we are basing economic um, argument towards it. Because as you know and as I know, the wall is not only a matter of order. It is... It is it, that will cause suffering for, for another nation. My, and this is, we go beyond technical economic issues. But if we go, in my second question, to more technical issues, today Israel decided to increase the value-added tax to 18%. And as you just uh, illustrated, the Palestinian Authority immediately declared that from 1st of June it would be 16% in the Palestinian Authority. So um, for, do you expect that? Or what is the reason that Israel now decided to increase uh, the VAT to 18%? Is it economic or...? or Purely economic. Can I ask, because of the technical, why it is? And do you expect it will lead to protests in the the Palestinian Authority areas? And um, why that difference, the 2% uh, from... It's it's old story, but can you explain it? All right. So let me start from one thing. First of all, I was, talk, I was not extolling the virtues of the wall. It's ugly as hell, and I've got some other reservations as well about it. I was only pointing out that this is the situation on the ground. And therefore, given the situation on the ground, other economic uh, arrangements are possible. That's all I've been saying. I've been not saying that it's good or it's bad, nothing of the sort. I think customs union is best. Customs union does not require a wall. It's... It, it, it's Wall does not preclude it, but it does not uh, not exclude the wall. They're not, uh, uh, but not uh, requirable. So that's one thing. Not exclude. Sorry. But the other the other question is about uh, the value added tax. Uh, wh- why do you have this uh, decision to new equalization? Was exactly for the reason of not um, making the custody common custom envelope a possibility of. Uh, uh, emptying the Israel, or voiding the Israel indirect tax regime. If you've got, if we don't have a border, then in Israel, and if the value-added tax is lower in the Palestinian Authority than it is in, in Israel, then nobody would buy in Israel. They'll all be buying things imported and via the, the Palestinian Authority. So that was, that was the price of having a customs union. That's one thing. Now, why, why 2%? 
And the reason, the truth is, that there was talk of having 5%. Because the Palestinians at that time used to say that, look, our people are poor. They cannot afford the thing which you import from, from, from expensive countries. Uh, and they cannot pay such high taxes, and so on and so forth. So there was some talk of having 5%. And the decision was to have 2% and to see how it works. If there is little trade diversion to Israel via the Palestinian Authority, it may be possible to enlarge it. But then you see the relationship soured, and that was never brought up. And the Palestinians never brought up it. You know why? Because it's the main source of income of the Palestinian Authority. As simple as that. I'll give you one example. There is one good in which the border is notional. You don't need a physical border. There are more, but there is one very prominent one. Motor vehicles. There is a registration of motor vehicles. So if you sell a motor vehicle from one side to another, you have to register it, and then you can collect the taxes if the tax margin were too low. <clears throat> Palestinian Authority could set its own tariff on motor vehicles. And the, and the uh, tariff on Israeli, on, uh, in Israel on motor vehicles is prohibitionally high, I don't want to say. It is for two reasons, both a fiscal reason and a social quality reason, and also for, uh, um, uh, for environmental reasons. Now, the Palestinians could decide to have a lower, a lower, a lower tax on, on uh, import tax on a lower tariff on vehicles. They didn't do it. Why? They need the money. They need the money. So you have to take that into consideration. Yes, please. Um, my name is Emma Smith, and I'm a journalist. And I want Everybody has to earn their living. I am an economist for the same reason, yes. I want to ask you a larger question about the future. About the future, yeah. yeah. In your presentation, excellent presentation, you mentioned the Oslo Accords did not discuss land use, water, airports, etc., or Area C, for example. In the future, can we talk more specifically about those vital things, whatever sovereignty happens or doesn't happen with the West Bank and the territories? How can you have, irrespective of a customs union or a free trade agreement, something that creates a viable Palestinian economy without that inclusion of land, water, airports, etc. Related to that is you and I were part of something in Bronfman Foundation before, years ago, before Oslo, when what became, you know, when the European Union, Australia, Palestinians and Israelis together, and Harvard experts and various people were involved, and that we've seen, I would say, roughly, is the economic peace argument, Alatoni Blair, Quartet, etc. Do you think that's still viable? And if so, is it desirable? Final question, I quit. Is Bloomberg, good old news agency, has recently discussed the fact that many of these Israeli security restrictions actually tried to prevent commercial rivalries from Palestinian companies rivaling Israeli pharmaceuticals, ICT, whatever. Is that a valid statement? I All right. <coughs> uh, let me start. Oh, I, I, I lost myself somewhere. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. First of all, look, uh, these subjects of Area C, water and so on, 
they were not they were, they were treated in the in the in the Paris in the in the agreement the Cairo agreement of May of May 1994. It's not that they were not treated, but they were not treated like in the in the they were not subject they were not in the, included in the in the economic protocol. They were considered to be subject of security and political importance, and they were debated and negotiated in in, in Taba and in in, 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 in Cairo and. Uh, whether the results of this are happy or not, are good for somebody or not, is a separate story. It's just that <clears throat> I wanted to point out that they were not, this was not covered by the economic agreement, though these things have got a tremendous impact on the economy. There is no doubt about that. But they've got also other impacts, let's face it. So that's, that's number one. Now, as to the question of uh, economic peace, uh, I am not a great subscriber to that. You know, immediately after also I was bombarded by questionnaires from various, especially American, incidentally, uh, academics, uh, they were making a survey what will, whether the Middle East could have benefit from having a, uh, or what are the chances of Middle East common market, and things of this sort. And I said, you know, it's not on the books. Well, anything, any such agreement so that people trade, and people trade, they don't shoot at each other. Oh, really? England and France will be Germany in two world wars. The Americans went on trading even when they were shooting in the second world war. I mean, that's... Uh, so, I don't believe much in that. There is certain asymmetry. A deterioration in economic conditions might breed uh, violence. An improvement doesn't necessarily extinguish it. That's one thing. Now, uh, f uh, sorry, it's escaping me. Your last point was important. I want to go back to this. So, about security... Oh, yes, 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 oh, yes, all right. Look, uh, there is a lot of... There have been a lot of complaints... Uh, and it's difficult to judge because things may really look some things really look different from, from, from each side. That's quite clear. That's quite clear. <coughs> uh, but there is no doubt also that not security or other arrangements have been unofficial, inofficial, and I'm, I'm emphasizing that, used as non-tariff barriers. That's what you mean. Uh, not too much, not too much as a fact, I suspect. I don't know, but I suspect. It's not easy to do that because you have to remember one thing. One thing Palestinian business uh, community discovered that they may get help, assistance from the Israeli Supreme Court. For many years it was considered politically wrong, accepting the occupation. And then they discovered that sometimes it works. So it's... That, that limits or restricts the people who would like to do this sort of thing. Look, there are two people, two types. First of all, there are some people who think that making the Palestinians poor is good for Israel, or making them suffer is good for Israel. I'm sure there are people on the other side who think the same, except that they don't have these powers which our people have, but uh, that's one thing. There are some people all over the world who think that uh, putting a... Uh, a spike in the, in the wheels of, uh, of uh, import is good for the economy. That's a very, very common attitude all over the world, I think. So these things do operate. But I don't know... I, let me give you an example which I know, which I shared with one who's present here. A, 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 a very successful pharmaceutical producer uh, from, um, from the Palestinian Authority who has got the European standards and he exports uh, pharmaceuticals to Germany. I know who it is. Yes, you know who it is. <laughs> and uh, his problem is that the Germans, quite rightly so, 
require that the packages won't be tampered with from the moment they leave his factory until they arrive in Germany, which I think is a very basic thing for a, a purchaser of pharmaceuticals to demand. On the other hand, Israel will not put a par- par- person parcel on an aircraft without opening and testing it. So there's, there, are, there are real conflicts here. And I think that there might be... There are, I'm sure that there are cases like the one which you described, which you're referring to. I'm sure there are. I could quote some. But I think the main thing is, is, is a real conflict of, uh, of basic interests, which is a very serious problem, I'm afraid. Next question. Yes, please. My name is Victor. I'm a student at SOAS. You are? student at SOAS. SOAS, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, the Palestinian exports actually decreased from the 90s until today. How do you see uh, the prospects for the future of the Palestinian economy? We have to ask yourself why. And the, and the answer usually given, and it is partly correct, mm-hmm. is, the, is the harassment, so to say, the difficulty of, cross, you know, of uh, exporting via the Israeli uh, check posts and... Uh, <coughs> uh, Crossing points and so on, suppose, you know, back to back packaging. Sorry. I think he misunderstood what you said. He said that they increased, but you said they, no, they, they decreased. decreased. They increased they, in nominal value. They but decreased in real in terms, they were, they were, it has decreased. And the reasons were two. I mean, and one of the, re- one of, that's all right. I mispronounce sometimes. Uh, blame me. Uh, the, uh, one of the reasons, was I said, was the hustle, the, the difficulties, the security checks and so on. That doesn't help. But the other one was, which people don't realize usually, a country which gets a lot of foreign assistance or which whose, work, whose workers work abroad and, and earn money must have a large import surplus. Must have. Otherwise, the only way of not having an import surplus if the foreign assistant doesn't get into the country but is deposited in, in, in Swiss banks under the names of some officials. Because the only way of transferring the assistance in real terms is importing more than you pay for by with, 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 with exports. That's a known since the first, after the, the wake of the First World War is the transfer problem and seems to have been completely forgotten in dealing with, with the Palestinian import surplus. Which of the two are more important? Uh, nobody made the, the, the study and I'm not ready to say. But I to remember that that's a very serious thing. <coughs> Palestinians still earn a lot of a lot is working in Israel, much less than they used to, but still. And uh, it's over a billion uh, dollars per year. And they get very high foreign assistance. And that must express itself in a, in a uh, excess of, imports of, our, of exports of our imports. The other reason which Palestinian businessmen used to raise, which I think is less valid today, was that, and I mentioned before, I think, that uh, the equalization of, of wages earned by Palestinians in Israel and in the Pal- in Pal- in Palestinian territories themselves meant that the wage level there became rather high. And therefore the um, advantage of cheap labor, which the Palestinians might have had, was lost. You may notice that that's a view of the, of the businessmen, of the employers. It wouldn't be the view of the people who earned these wages. But that's, that's, that's another story. But one has to remember now, this is less true now because the numbers of Palestinians allowed to work in Israel, even if you include those who managed to smuggle themselves in, and there are still large numbers, uh, is not large enough to throw the level of wages in the West Bank to the, to the level of those which Palestinians earn in Israel. 
So this this is this is now less important than it used to be, but it's still there. Yes, there's a lady over there. Hi. Um, countries such as the UK give uh, not huge amounts, but they do give a substantial sum in uh, bilateral aid to the Palestinian territories. And I was wondering what you think the appropriateness of those uh, regimes are of aid in the Palestinian Hold on for a moment. I've got a bed here, and you're, you're speaking from the bedside. If you could either speak up, or I'll move to the other desk. That would be even better. But uh, I, thought, I realized I was missing what you were saying, and I'm sure it's important. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I don't know if it's important. Uh, <laughs> countries such as the UK give the Palestinian territories bilateral aid assistance, and it's very often economically uh, focused. So it, it's about wealth generation, uh, because lots of the social and political empowerment gets lost along the way, um, unsurprisingly. Uh, but in terms of economics and, and bilateral aid, do, do you think it's appropriate that we give aid um, to the Palestinian authorities when it, it could quite easily just be of a political origin that there's a problem in the first place? What, what do you think the role of aid is? Look, there are some people who claim that the aid is, is corrupting and that the aid is bad and so on. As far as corruption is concerned, uh, one of the great, I think, um, achievements of... Uh, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Fayyad, was reducing tremendously the scope for corruption. The way of, cor- of reducing corruption is scope. You know, you, you close the holes through, through which the mice come in. And uh, I think he was quite successful. Not 100% successful, far from it. was quite successful in that. Um, there is also the question of mismanagement sometimes of, um, of aid money. You know, aid money is something which you get for nothing. So you don't bother about the efficiency of uh, the way which you use it. I'm speaking out of the Israeli experience in the past, in our far past. But do you think it helps? What's that? Do you think it helps? Uh, but I think, well, it depends what you want. If you want to ele- alleviate uh, standards of living, certainly it does. If you open a hospital, it certainly helps. If you help a school, it certainly does. Whether it generates wealth, that's a good question which you have to, ch- to, to check each of these pro- pro- projects on its own merits. If it is something which, for example, raises education standards, it will generate wealth, but in the future, not in the immediate future. Mm-hmm. If it, uh, this sort of thing, you have to, to, to check each project on its own merits, I'm afraid. But I wouldn't say that, um, I, I don't accept the view that uh, um, foreign assistance, foreign aid was something which damaged the Palestinian society, which I've heard quite often, and certainly didn't damage the Palestinian economy. It's just that sometimes it seems that the inequalities with the Palestinian way of life is it, because it, it has a political origin. Uh, so I just wonder if, if you can kind of combat that by economic development, if, if the problem still fundamentally exists. I'm sorry, I didn't quite get to your point. But, well, I can, I can. I know, I know what you mean. Yes. So well, there's the question. Uh, Palestinian yeah. Israelis seems to be the problem. That's why there's not economic development. So does does it make sense to have like financial assistance if the fundamental problem hasn't been addressed? Well, that's part of what, what the World Bank has been saying and others that that. Uh, Basically, the international community is subsidizing the occupation. That, in, in, in a sense, it's making life easier for Israel by 
supporting the... Isn't that what you mean? That's, yeah, it, yeah. Just, it, it just seems like the, the reason that there's an economic problem is because of the, the politics. Yeah. So I just wonder if... So, so, so if, if there was no aid and Israel is in occupation and there's no... and the PA cannot pay, then then Israel would, would by, by law, be in, responsible for all the services, education, health, and all that. So, that. so that's part of the question. If it has to collect taxes in the Palestinian, authority, in the Palestinian uh, territories after the PA, let's say, returned the keys, that's what you mean. PA decides it can't stand it any longer, it disbands itself, right? Yeah. And then Israel, Israel has to look after... It's not something Israel would welcome, as you can imagine, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, you have to remember that, again, by Israel's standards, these are not very large sums. And I think what would happen was that Israel would be able to collect taxes that much more roughly than they were collected by the Palestinian Authority. You don't have the problems, very important, in Middle Eastern societies in general, that was the family of the clan loyalty. So if, they, if, they, if the tax officer is from your clan, there's then great chances of being able not to pay your taxes properly, correct? That's what I miss here. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, that's true in any place, don't understand yeah. any, but stronger in certain societies than in others. So that's what would happen. And also some of the, of the level of some of these uh, services probably be lowered. It's true that Israel... That's one thing which Israel does not want. It's quite clear, and it has been said for precisely that reason. For precisely that reason. But um, I don't think that uh, that would result in Israel. They probably probably would say to Israel, all right, go your way. We have got no defense. We can't care less. Look, the part of the problem is the security problem from Israeli point of view. So the PA has abdicated your problem. Now, are we still occupied? Are we still the occupier of Gaza? Now that the Rafah crossing is, is uh, um, managed by the Egyptians? There's no Israeli soldiers in Gaza. We may prefer, we may try to prevent some, some boats reaching it, you know, some rather famous occasions. I won't go into all that, but we don't occupy it any longer. If there, is, if there is one urgent, one more very urgent question, I will take it because we are getting very close to the time. And if not, then I will have it. I will be sorry. I just want to say a quick uh, question and a quick answer, maybe. Um, I lived in Israel from 1969 to 1974, yeah. and uh, came to live in England. You know, during that period of time when I was in Israel. There was freedom of uh, movement. Of movement. movement, and it was fantastic, to be quite honest. You know, uh, we used to go to Gaza, we used to go to the West Bank. Uh, there was a lovely uh, freedom of movement. My question is, are we ever going to see that, that kind of um, freedom of movement in Israel? Uh, so I remember my uh, my brother, who uh, still operates in Israel, he's got a, a factory there. And he used to employ mainly Palestinians in the past, uh, which he can't do anymore now. I don't know if it was due to uh, wages or anything like that, but uh, uh, he was very happy with his workforce in those days. And um, today he employs mainly Israelis. It's not a big business, but mainly Israelis. 
is the question is will we ever see that kind of life ever again? I think it was Groucho Marx once once said it's very difficult to forecast, especially the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's a pious yeah. wish, I join in that wish, but I don't know. Not in the near future. But part of the future is discussions now about bringing in the Arab Peace Initiative, yeah. and bringing in all the Arab, Arab investment and all that, and that would complicate things further. On the, on the not on the economics. No, not on the, but, on but the political, on the, but not on the economic. Well, no. on, the, on the economic, you'd have to make some amendments to the to the to the protocol and to the restrictions. And Look, the protocol itself is not as a sacred. It's not a holy writ. That's one yeah. thing. So we need some new document. It was uh, remember, it was intended for four year, for five years, and we are almost twenty years since, well, nineteen years since it was signed. Right, this month. 19 years. So obviously things, there were things which were not foreseen at that time. Developments were not foreseen. There were difficulties which were not foreseen which would have occurred even if there would be no change in the security and political situation. So obviously, now as I said, we probably would be moving, as far as the Palestinians are concerned, they probably wish to move to slightly less, slightly less uh, integrative uh, relationship. But we're trying not to lose at the same time the Israeli markets. So now the the entry of the Arab countries depends depends on the, what are their regimes. And if you look formally, we had recently uh, considerable trade with Egypt, and Egypt trades very little with the Middle East, very little, not just with Israel, very very little. Uh, we trade something with, the, with 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 Jordan. I mean, trade does exist, mm. uh, and according to uh, sensational reports in some economic press. We also, there's always, I read about some a customs official somewhere in, 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 in the Gulf who gets a shock, he opens a box of chocolates and sees them stamped with the Star of David. That's the sign that came from Israel. Believe me, I've never seen any chocolates stamped with the Star of David in my life. So, but, but there are things. I have, got, I have got a hunch, and it's purely a hunch. Don't, uh, don't quote me on that, but it's a hunch. Every country exports a thing which is in which it is very relatively very very efficient. Now, what is Israel? Where is Israel relatively efficient? I think that's one thing. What? I, but think of something broader. Military. Was that? Military. Defense industry, security, <laughs> and I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of installations in the Gulf, for example, are are, are, are using Israeli. No, no, there's been. So, I mean, this sort of thing, yes, and, and some firms will make a package and so on, but it's not, um, the future is not in there. But I'm going to make one forecast, which is that next Monday at <laughs> 6.30 p.m., there is a, there's a lecture by Dr. Maliha Menghazi about new intellectualism trends in contemporary conscious music. That's in Iran. Right? <laughs> so that, that, that would be. And, and I'd like you to join me in thanking our speaker for. Uh,